Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate you serving us this morning. Well, good morning. Looks like we have some families vacationing. It kind of shows in the seating arrangements here this morning. But as uh, Corky made mention, our air conditioning, the one in the very back is working. So hopefully it's freezing cold back there. Then we have the air, this fan circulating. We're trying to get the air up front, but the tendency will, I know it gets very warm up here for a variety of reasons, but it'll be warmer up front than the back. Um, And so if you start getting a little sweaty, it could be because of our broken air conditioner or better yet, it might be conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you start getting hot and uncomfortable, either one is welcome. We have a busy morning this morning. We have a message and then worship and communion and a baptism. And then after that, we hope you can join us for our fellowship meal. But on our communion Sundays, we are doing a series on the Psalms that we've entitled God Tunes. And the purpose is to look at the Old Testament worship book, the book of songs, basically. And these are the words or the songs that were penned by men of old under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they are songs that fill our hearts with ways to respond to God in worship. And this morning we are turning to Psalm 107. And Psalm 107 is a psalm that summons the saints, summons the congregation to thankfulness by challenging us to ponder and consider The redeeming love of God in our lives. Now, I know that we all have our own story when it comes to our testimony and how God has touched our hearts. I have my story and how God has handled me. You have your story and how God has touched your heart. But if we have a saving relationship with the Lord this morning, it's because at some point or a series of points, God's redeeming love Has won us over. And the psalmist is going to challenge us on that basis. Because God has loved you into his kingdom, the proper response is thanksgiving. And that's what we will learn this morning. It's a very, very powerful psalm. Actually, it was brought to my attention by Corky last week when he was speaking on Jonah. I think it was last week. He made reference to Psalm 107, and you'll see why. On our last point here, and uh, I started to read not just the portion that he pointed out, but the whole psalm. And I thought, wow, this is a powerful, powerful psalm in and of itself. In fact, John MacArthur went to preach on this psalm, I think, back in the 80s. He's a pastor in California, uh, has been pastoring now over 50 years, if you can imagine. And. As I often do, before he preaches, he reads the text. And so he was he read Psalm 107. And he says, I didn't realize how the reading of that psalm would impact a young man who was sitting back in that section. Of course, he's talking to his congregation. I later came to understand that this psalm just being read without comment was the turning point in his life. This was a young man, very tall and handsome young man named Robert, and he had been for many years a part of the gay activist group in Los Angeles as a homosexual. He had lived that lifestyle for many years, was even involved in planning um, the, the gay pride parade, very aggressive in his advocacy. And he had become HIV 
positive and was told that he had a very brief time to live. Interestingly enough, as he reiterated this entire testimony, not only to me, but to our congregation, when he was baptized a few weeks after the Sunday, I read the psalm. He came never having known about our church, and he sat in the back. And as I started to read Psalm 107, I read verse 6. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way. And he heard that word straight, and the word straight has a specific connotation in, the, in homosexual terminology. He says, and then I continued to read, and I got down to verse 13. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses, brought them out of the darkness, the shadow of death, broke their bonds apart. And then verse 16, shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. And he said to me, when you read that, I knew I was in the right place. And he said, and I burst into tears and I wanted to cry out to God and I wanted God to lead me in that straight way and break the bars that held me. But he said, but then you read that psalm and then you sang songs and then the choir sang and then you kept preaching and preaching and preaching. And all I could think of, why doesn't this guy just shut up so I can learn how to cry out to God to make my path straight? He said, I don't remember anything you said except that it just irritated me that I was a wreck and I was weeping and I just wanted somebody to tell me how to cry out to God. And so he came that Sunday morning and he cried out to God and God heard him and he was delivered from his distress and he was wonderfully saved, became a shining witness in that community at every opportunity possible, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He became a part of MacArthur's church fellowship, gave a wonderful testimony in the waters of baptism and within a matter of months was in heaven. That happened just from the reading of this psalm without comment. And it is a psalm for which I think we will all find our place in and will all find a reason to be thankful to God. And what I want to do is just read a few verses as introduction to the first verses and then the very last verse and then read the psalm rather than reading all the way through because it is lengthy. Just read it in chunks as we go. And it actually neatly breaks into four different parts. But as way of introduction, verse one and verses one and two, he opens with these words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. So we learn from the psalmist, if you ask the question, well, how do you become grateful? How do you, how do you foster a heart of gratitude to God? Well, one of the ways is by considering the redeeming love of God as applied to our lives. And then in verse 43, the very last verse of this psalm. He says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And so the whole idea is that the steadfast love of God needs to be pondered, puzzled over, mulled over in our minds. 
because God's redeeming love is is astonishing. It's astounding. And as we contemplate how incredible he is and how gracious he has been to us, we keep that in our minds. It makes our minds fertile and contemplating the redeeming love of God grows good things in our thoughts. And one of the good things that it grows is gratitude in our hearts, according to the psalmist. So worship is emotional, but not just a momentary emotional experience. It needs to be a wholesome recognition of Almighty God and thinking of why he is so worthy, just so worthy of not just our songs of praise, but our entire lives. And the psalmist says that considering God in this way, it's a really wise thing to do. It's something that people of wisdom are marked by, contemplating the redeeming love of God. And we studied the book of Proverbs and we learned that wisdom is competence in regards to reality. In other words, it's the whole package. It's not what we often ascribe wisdom to in our culture is uh, how much data you can hold in your mind and then recite. And you're considered a very intelligent person the more you can hold in there. But it's different in the Bible. In the Bible, you could be a Jeopardy champ and still be a fool. Because biblical wisdom is when you allow the truths of God, you don't just know them or recite them, but you allow them literally to transform your heart, to transform your life. The ways of God, it's, it, it builds our character. And so we allow ourselves to be shaped by God's word. That's a wise thing to do. And the psalmist is saying, when you think deeply about the covenant, redeeming, steadfast love of God, it will transform you. It will change your heart. And the way that the psalmist invites us to do this this morning it's rather unique, and as I was reading it when Corky made mention to it, there, there are four groups of people that he summons to give thanks for four different reasons. And I think as we read these, we will all find our place here in the way that God perhaps has dealt with us in the past or maybe perhaps is dealing with us now in the present. But whatever The plight in life or the place in life, the clear message is that whatever the nature of one's trouble, God is able to redeem. Just hear that loud and clear this morning. Whatever the nature of one's trouble, God is able to redeem. So the four groups that he addresses are the lost or the wanderers. There's one group. And then people uh, grouped as prisoners find themselves in prison and then a group that he calls uh, fools because they have made unwise decision and, and has literally brought them sick to death's door. And then lastly, seafarers. So our redemption from sin is then imaged in these analogies. Our redemption is like lost people that have been found or People that have been locked up and now have been liberated and freed or those that have been sick have been made whole by God's power or those that have been threatened to perhaps be drowned have been brought right to a safe 
place. So first of all, the wanderers we find in the first nine verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So basically, the worship leader, the psalmist, is speaking to different groups in the congregation. And there were some among the worshipers that had experienced this. And we know, as we think about Israel's history, that some of their history of God's people included wandering. And in particularly, desert wanderings. You know, these wanderers are stuck in the desert. That's not a good place to be. Deserts... Or, or maybe good places to temporarily endure while you're crossing over to get to the city or to the place that you long to be. It's something that sometimes you have to just cross over. But it's, it's not a place to live. It's a place to cross over so you can get to the place that you can live. Because as you know, the things that we need to sustain us in life are in short supply in the desert. You know, provisions are scanty and, and water very, very scarce there at all. And, and shade, uh, provisions, there, there are no homes and towns and livestock where you can just help yourself to whatever you need. And there's dangers from bandits and so forth. So when you get lost in the desert for any length of time, you are in serious trouble. Even to this very day, with all the modern technologies we have, if you get lost in the desert, you are in serious trouble. And just to let it really sink in for our young people in the desert, there's no Wi-Fi. So that that just to give you an idea of what the drastic measures that we're talking about here, harsh conditions. And the desert has a way of letting you know, you know, we're either going to bury you here or push you out in a sense. It doesn't offer nice things. When you get there and you feel stuck and you're just wandering around and you've lost sight of what direction you're going in, where you're supposed to be going. And you're circling around and you keep finding is no matter how much effort you put forth to get out. You keep circling around and see the same sights and you begin to lose hope. You begin to lose meaning and you wonder if you're ever going to get out of there and you know you shouldn't draw this conclusion, but you're so exhausted and hopeless that you're very tempted to just give up. Just find the most comfortable place that you can and give up. Just like Ishmael's mother, Hagar, when Sarai sent her out into the desert and she went as far as she could and did the best she could, but there was just nothing out there in order for her to live. And so she just found a place to curl up and die. Of course, you're crossing the desert. You're supposed to just be crossing it to find a place that you can call home. And in that day, for the psalmist, he describes a city 
And that was a place to do life in the city because the city has everything you need. The city has the walls of protection. It has the shade. It has the fertile ground, the provisions, the sustenance, the water. It's a place that you really can go plant your roots and make a nice living. So having no way to get out, verse 6 This is what they did. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress and he led them by a straight way and they reached a city to dwell in. God saves them from their worst nightmare. They were lost and because they cried, they were found. They were homeless and now he has brought them straight way. No more wandering, no more curves, just right to the point of their place of dwelling. And the same imagery can be easily describe our state of spiritual lostness. And, and that the challenge here from the psalmist is do not forget the circumstances in which God's redeeming love visited you. Keep it in your mind and reciprocate it with thanksgiving. Spiritually lost, if we think about that. What, what do the spiritually lost experience? Well, walking aimlessly through life, lost, wandering, uh, having no spiritual bread to satisfy their hunger, no living water to quench that thirst. And so we go through life parched in that sense, searching and searching Going from one place to another, perhaps from one religion to another, from one relationship to another, from one job to another, from one marriage to another, from one drug to another, from one thrill to another. Whatever it is that we think will bring us out of this place of dryness, this wasteland. So we try to cross whatever we can to find the fellowship that our hearts long for. And like Abraham, really, what we're searching for is that city whose architect and builder is God. The hope is that in that wandering, in that place of desolation, the hope is that that the people will come to their senses and cry out to God. To see the helplessness and hopelessness and get to that point where they cry out to God so that he can bring them to safety. And welcome them home. And what a picture of grace this is. And how many times do we take our own lives in the wrong direction, find ourselves lost, unable to regain our bearings, and cry out, and there is God in His grace to show us the path and to take us along the straight way. And The Heavenly Father welcomes this lost group of people and in great pleasure hands them the kingdom, a city, gives them the sustenance they need to pilgrim through. And of course, the obligation here is to give thanks. So that's the first group, the wanderers. And then we he calls out or summons the second group, perhaps in the congregation in verses 10 through 16. The prisoners. 
Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. This group is experiencing prison life, very, very harsh prison life. And even to this very day, there are few places in this world that are as dark as what we find in prisons. Even in our civilized world, deplorable things. It's kind of like the, the darkness of the dark often harbors itself in places of prisons. And the conditions are suffocating. They're, they're brutal. And in this case, these prisoners are in for situation of forced hard labor with no rest. And they realize that there's no getting out. There's just no way out of here. And of course, when you're incarcerated, you think about things. You, you're fixated with, I could just get out of this situation. But the walls were too high. The guards were too many. The chains were too strong. And so they just sat facing execution or a slow, agonizing death. But noticed why they're there. Verse 11, they had rebelled against the words of God, spurned the counsel of the Most High. So this is a group of people that have breached faith and despised the royal counsel of God. And they're suffering the consequences of it. And he and he brought them low. He brings them down. And when we lift ourselves up, God will see to it often that he brings us back down because it's down here in this place of lowliness that we can actually see grace the clearest. The further we are from God's word, the closer we are from a prison of our own making. A prison that, that torments us with our own lusts and, and confines us by our own contempt for God. The hope is that we will come to our senses like the prodigal. That we'll see life, we'll see our decisions, we'll see our situation. We see the fruit of our labors and our beliefs and our thinking. And that we will come to our senses and that we will come before him. We have nothing to offer him in this case but wreckage. And that's what they offered God, these prisoners that had strayed from his word. And that was enough with the cry, a heartfelt cry to the covenant-making God. And that's what they do in verse 13. This is the same words. We find it in all four groups as the theme just develops more and more clearly. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. And he brought them out of the darkness, the shadow of death and burst their bonds. He breaks them out. 
Their own choices have imprisoned them, stuck them in deplorable consequences and conditions. And they need a liberator and God breaks them out. He, he breaks the prison bars. He breaks the handcuffs. He breaks the, train, the, the chains or blasts the walls down. Whatever it is, he breaks them out. And so suddenly and instantaneously, they find themselves free. Why? Just because they cried. Just because they knew who to go to. When all the other things in life, they learn, no, I thought this would save me, but it didn't. And I thought I could trust in this, but I can't. And I thought I can trust in that, but I can't. And all I have left is my knowledge of God. And they cry out to God. You see, and the obligation, of course, is to praise. So the psalmist is setting this beautiful pattern up for God's worshipers. The only fitting response to the redeeming love is just a life of praise and thanksgiving. And then third, we see the group that he calls foolish. Some were fools through their sinful ways, verse 17. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. And delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. For his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving. And tell of his deeds in songs of joy. So this group, like the prisoners, are facing the situation that they're in because of unwise choices. Because they also took steps away from God and his ways instead of toward God and his ways. And they are suffering greatly for it, for their rebellion. Their rebellion didn't land them in prison under harsh, forced labor. Their rebellion caved in or imploded, you might say, in their own hearts. Their rebellion betrayed them. And now they are in this place where they are out of their own resources. And everything that they turn to, the, the, the pleasures of life, they, they loathe food. And they have visited or been in that place of sin so long that the pleasures, the appetites that God provides for us as sustenance, as pleasures of life, they, they just, they've... They loathe those things now. They have lusted and indulged after so many things to try to make them something that they're not, the pleasures of this world, that now they don't even want anything anymore. They are at this, in this terrible place of hopelessness and meaninglessness. It's like that cancer. The sin works like a cancer. It gets into our bodies and the very things, the good cells that our bodies need to stay whole and healthy, it attacks them so that the unhealthy ones take over. And we can become so deceived in our thinking and what we believe and how life works that in, in essence we attack ourselves and we smother and we reject the very things that we need to bring us life. 
we find ourselves attacking those and rejecting those. That is sin at work. And one of the things that um, our youth culture struggles with, and even here in way out in the country in Nottaway County, is that the, our youth have set up a culture of acceptance. And the biggest thing now for youth is that you have to be in. And they've set up this culture where you have to look a certain way or talk a certain way or do certain things or dress a certain way or buy certain things in order to be accepted. And if you don't, you're out of the group. And so a lot of youth, unfortunately, because that is set up as the epitome of life, if they're not in the circle, if they get pushed out of the circle, they lose hope. And so we have a, uh, an epidemic of suicide. In our midst. And how many times do we read in the paper year after year about somebody that we knew, a neighbor perhaps, someone, a young person has lost hope in life because they made life this little culture and lost perspective of the big picture of God's blessing. That is sin at work. What a, a sad, sad thing when we're, we get allow ourselves to be so steeped in falsehood that we reject the very things that God gives us and sends to us to not just keep us alive, but to help us flourish and thrive. But some, as low as they are, some at least have one last cry in them. And that's what this group did. They cried out to God. They at least did that right. In verse 19 Read the same words again. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Just like that, the power of God, just sending out a word, he healed them. And now their bodies once again crave the things that are good for them, want the things that are wholesome. How did this happen? This life of restoration and wholeness. A simple, heartfelt, sincere cry for the grace and mercy of God. I know it doesn't sound fair that we can just choose, perhaps for years on end, to live lives of sin and to get us ourselves in the worst of messes. And even to lose within our own minds any hope of anything, except just have on reserve this one little ability to cry out to God. And then God swoops in and just takes us right out of it. It's not fair. It's grace. And God deals with us on grace. Not deserved, not earned, but when cried for, when sincerely sought for evokes the power of our redeeming covenant God. John MacArthur says, sick with their guilt, sick with their anxiety, listless, depressed, troubled without an appetite for divine food, having no inclination even for virtue, nauseated by the scripture, nauseated by the bread of life, may still call on the great physician, the restorer and the redeemer who will come to them and intervene with full healing. And of course, what does the psalmist once again remind us? 
What is the only proper response? Verse 22. And let them offer sacrifices and thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. A life of sacrifice. Words of thanksgiving. Songs of joy. Praise is a fitting response to the goodness of God. And then lastly, we have the seafarers in verses 23 through 32. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, and they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. And they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waters of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, and the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. These are sea merchants. They've traveled many days over the seas. And in doing so, when you're out there in the wide open waters, they have admired God's handiwork. And they had seen the seas at times where it was just perfectly still. And they, they've admired the beauty of the skies, perhaps clouds and the sun. And then even getting to see sea creatures that many don't ever get to lay eyes on. But they also saw this serenic condition suddenly turn with a storm. And those same waters that seem so embracing and safe now, they face perhaps 100 foot waves and 100 mile hour winds that turn that ship into like a toothpick. And the psalmist is describing the up and he's up into the heavens and now he's down in the depths and he's up in the heavens and down in the depths. And it's kind of like one of those roller coaster rides or carnival rides that has gone wild. And you're thinking to yourself, any time now, you got to stop this thing or those. Um, what are they called again? Lisa, the wop, the uh, the baked and battered things at the carnivals, the um, funnel cakes. You're about to lose your funnel cakes from that ride. And all the Dramamine in the world isn't going to help you. And they're, they're so tossed to and from. He says they're like drunken men. They don't know what direction to go. They can't stand straight. There's no solid ground under them. All of that brave talk that they probably began their journey with about how I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that is gone. And so they see the power of God. The power of God that can make peace, but also the power of God that can bring storms. And all of a sudden they feel really, really small. Really helpless. And of course, this is the passage that Corky made mention to when talking about Jonah. Because Jonah, this is what humbled Jonah and all the men on the ship. was the storm that the Lord sent. And there's something about a sea that is about to sink to the bottom. Or perhaps in our day, there's something about that announcement from the pilot in the plane that is about to plunge. Please secure yourself for impact. But all of a sudden, you feel pretty small. 
all of a sudden you realize, what do I have to save myself? What resources can I draw from? There are none in this situation. So what do they do? Cry to the Lord, verse 28, in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. Now, what do we do with the storms of life? We either cry out or perhaps let them drown us. We we stagger like drunken men, lose our wits, lose our direction, or melt in fear or cry out. They cried out and he silenced the sea. And remarkably, as twisted and turned as they were, not knowing their bearings, he brings them exactly to their destination. Where they were headed the whole time in the first place. They found a friend in Jesus. God is incredible. The redeeming covenant love of God is incredible. So the people that were lost... They form that caravan and they find the city. People that were in prison were liberated, set free from the bondage that they brought upon themselves. And those that made foolish decisions to the point where they were so sick they couldn't even do anything good for themselves anymore. With that cry, God redeemed them and with a word brought them to wholeness. And then those that were about to go down, God brings right to their death's destination They cried and God came. A cry to the living God is a powerful, powerful thing. A heartfelt, sincere cry to a God like the God we serve. Powerful. And sometimes that's all we have. Sometimes, whether it's from outside or from inside, our own choices, we find ourselves... All we have is just this ability to reach out, to cry out. And that heartfelt cry, when said from the bottom of our hearts, when said, finally, integrity, finally, the games are gone. From the bottom of our hearts is heard and God gets it. That heartfelt cry speaks volumes about our depravity and about the grace of God. And God gets it. There's much we don't have, but everybody has at least one such cry. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. If we find ourselves in these positions, give it to God before it's too late, before the waves overcome us, before the prison walls get too high or thick. Don't waste it. Because Scripture reminds us that when we seek God, He can be found. It was God that saves The lost seek him while he is still near. And when God comes, give him thanks with a life of praise. So can we sing songs of joy this morning as we come to him and we worship him in praise and we worship him in holy communion as we enjoy the presence of God? You know, the Bible tells us that it is literally a sin Not to give God the praise that is due him. And we can list a lot of sins of bad things that people do in this world. But it is a sin in Romans 3.23. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. God deserves tremendous praise and glory. And to not give him the glory that is due him as an expression of life and praise is a sin. 
It's a sin to remain silent when God is so deserving. So I like the way this psalm brings us back to the gospel. It brings us to make God the focus of worship. He's the reason we're here. He's the reason we sing. Worship isn't about our favorite instruments, about our favorite songs. It's not about uh, what kind of mood we happen to be in when we get to church. It's about ascribing worth to God. It's not about as wonderful it is as it is to sing on key or to start out in the right tune. Verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's what changes us. It's that heartfelt worship. We allow God to transform our hearts. It's this kind of deep contemplative worship that permeates us and changes us. Music doesn't change us. Music is a beautiful thing and it's a tool of God. Sound systems don't change us. The guys up in their sound booth just gave me a dirty look, didn't they? No, they're ducking down. The sound of our voices doesn't change us. Music can make us sad or glad, and it's a beautiful thing. But it's the God of music that changes us. So we want to be changed and transformed this morning by the living God. So may our hearts call out to him, cry out to him for his grace and mercy in our lives that are so needy. We want to consider the things about God this morning and offer him our praise And continue to worship him as we witness the symbolic act of worship through baptism. May God bless the preaching of his word.